0: Tonight we're going to be in Second Corinthians chapter 5, if you want to turn there in your Bibles, that's where we'll be. Let's pray and we'll get started. Lord, we thank you for the worship time we've had, the singing so far, and we pray that your word would, would uh, penetrate our hearts tonight. We thank you for Paul's heart for this church. He has such a, a love for them and such hopes for them, and uh, he writes these beautiful letters to them. Regardless of how they felt about him, he needed to do his job as a shepherd, as a spiritual father to them. and. Uh, Lord, we just so appreciate him, and we, we pray that you'd help us to understand um, the dangers that the Corinthians found themselves in and, and how to protect ourselves from falling into those same traps. In Jesus' name, amen. Chapter 5, Paul moves into the assurance of resurrection, begins to talk a lot about eternity. Um, when you when you meditate on eternity and think about forever, it does make our problems here on earth a lot smaller than they than they really are. Um, it makes him feel, it puts him in perspective, I should say, and um, and so Paul um, has such high hopes for the Corinthian church and such a heart for them and a desire for them, and he writes these letters not to not to just you know say that he's right or to uh, you know make them feel bad about their opinions on things, but he's doing it for their growth and for their for their benefit. They've the Corinthian church had got to a place where they got stuck, you know. Um, I've I've had some experience with people, and um, I watch people's growth in the Lord. And there are moments when they when they not plateau, but they get caught up or they get um, they stall out. I mean, I think that's the best word to describe it. They stall out for a while. Something happens to them—a difficulty, a trial, um, uh, the world, just the cares of life in general—can stall someone's growth and their and their uh, and their movement forward with the Lord. Well, the Corinthian church got excited about getting saved and they got excited about their church and they were moving in the spirit, but then they, they changed. We don't know what happened exactly. Um, you know, Paul had moved on, had started doing other things in other cities, um, had left the responsibility to the elders behind for them to train and teach and to help people. Um, I guess the one word I think that, would, that we could probably associate with this church is pride. Pride is what did it. Um, they began to think of themselves as higher than each other. They began to think of each other as, well, my gift is better than your gift, and so on. And they began to prioritize gifts of the Spirit, um, some being more um, royal, you know, and others being more pedestrian and uh, nature. And so, uh, but they're the Holy Spirit, and he's trying to make a whole church, a, a fully functioning body. And so Paul, of course, has been taking them through many metaphors. The last one was a body, you know. It uh, can't all be an eye, can't all be an ear. Everybody has to have their part and do their thing, you know? And so don't say that you're you're worse because you're not an eye, and don't think that you're better because you are one. And so he tries to take them through that. Well, um, in this section, um, with this portion, um, Paul begins to talk about the body, you know, the physical body that we're in. And it's a very important thing for us to understand and to, and to grab a hold of it, really, that... Uh, knowing that this is a temporary um, fixture for us to dwell in and that your spirit is more than your body. I mean, your body is how you interact with each other. It's our interface. You know, It's, what, it's how we see each other and talk to each other, communicate. That's how God's designed it for us. But it's temporary. It's like a tent, he's going to say. He's going to use another metaphor describing it as a tent compared to the palace that God has for us. And so he's trying to get them to be thinking about that. And as he goes through this, there's some I mean, this is a great chapter. There's so much here, such such good solid doctrine. Verse 1, chapter 5. For we know, not we guess, not we think, not we hope. That's important. Paul knows. That's a bold statement for someone who's never been to heaven before, you know. For we know that if our earthly house, this tent, is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For in this we groan, in this body we groan, earnestly desiring to be clothed with our habitation which is from heaven. If indeed, having been clothed, we shall not be found naked. For we who are in this tent groan, being burdened, not because we want to be unclothed, but further clothed, that mortality may be swallowed up by life. Now he who has prepared us for this very thing is God, who also has given us the Spirit as a guarantee." Paul speaks, and this is a this is a statement made by faith. That's one of the only things we can do down here on earth. It's one of the things he's going to talk about when we sit before the judgment seat of Christ, which is the bema seat of Christ. It's like a rewards ceremony in a sense. It's more like the Olympics. You stand there and you get your your you know your grade basically. Versus the white throat judgment, which we'll talk about later. That's that's a court case. You know, um, that's where you get your punitive damages assessed. But this Bema seed of Christ, um, what we do by faith is what's judged. When you're in heaven, that's the one thing you can't do anything. You can't do anything by faith. Every angel, every being that's ever come from heaven to give us messages or to do some great thing for the Lord, well, none of those things were done by faith. They were done by sight. We are the only ones that have the ability to do things by faith simply because we believe God at his word we believe him. Our relationship is built upon that because he said so. So when Paul says, for we know that our earthly house, how do you know? I know, Paul says, because God says so. Wow. And that's, that's, that's faith. Um, that, is, that is a perfect example of it. And we get rewarded according to those things. What we do, we do by faith, the scriptures tell us, not by sight. We don't do it because we heard an audible voice from heaven and God told us to do this, that. Well, then that's not by faith. That's by sight or by hearing, you know. But we do it because His Word says so, because we feel we're led that way. That's by faith. And so, as Paul talks about this body, he's trying to get them to not think about their body so much and to be so uh, consumed with everything that goes on with it and what to eat, what not to eat, how to wash hands, all the things that. All the things that the Old Covenant really focused a lot on, you know. And so we had to be careful about that. And so Paul's trying to take them there. In John chapter 1, verse 14, speaking of tents, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory, the glory as of the one only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. All of John chapter 1 is about Jesus, His, his coming down into, coming down to earth. He was with God, but became a man and dwelt among us. And the word dwelt there is tabernacled, which is what they built in the Old Testament to worship God. It was a tent. So when we read this about the tent, this is important. Jesus was in his glorified state, but became a man, tented. Now, we didn't start in heaven, but we've been tented. But we're going to be like he was and is now, you see, when we die, when we go on to be with the Lord. And so Paul's trying to focus on that. Just like Jesus was tempted, but then ascended and glorified. Likewise, we will follow and we'll have that glorious body also. He's trying to build upon that. Sometimes it gets hard to think of, um, you know, living in this body a long time, especially when things start breaking and not working like they're supposed to. We've got a a tent in our backyard. How long has it been up? A couple months now. We're, we're going to we're gonna camp back there one of these days. We just never take it down because it's a pain to take it down and put it up. And so it's sitting out there in the field. And every time I look at it, I feel a little guilt and then I turn away from it and I forget about it and the guilt goes away. I should put that away or I should take my kids camping. We're going to camp. We will. Sunday. I don't know. Might be January. I don't know. We'll really need some covers. But I look at that and see inevitably when you take your kids camping especially if they're young if you've ever done this as an adult you know what happens if you're too close to the house well the house is an option about two o'clock in the morning you're bored you're hungry you have to go to the bathroom i'm just going to the bathroom you know they run in the house and they don't come back out again you know (laughs) they stay there and you find out you're camping by yourself well that's the allure that's the that's the attraction to that house it's warm it's solid it's nothing like this tent this tent is fine and if it was the only thing we had then fine i would i would be very careful with it and everything but if you look up on top of the hill and you see that house it's like oh that's all paul's trying to do with these people that's all he's trying to do with us as I think a lot about myself, and I think a lot about what I wear, and what you know, and the Bible tells me to do the exact opposite of that. Why do you care what you wear? Why do you care what you eat? Well, because I just I do not I don't know why. Can't get past it. God's like you've got a you've got a mansion waiting for you in heaven, a beautiful thing. And so He's trying to get them to think we don't, we're not going to be naked, we're not going to be just you know disbodied spirits, but we're going to be further clothed. We look forward to that. We grown in this tent. We're looking forward to that. Now, why is Paul telling the Corinthians about this? Why is that so important? Do you remember what was going on after he left? If you remember way back in 1 Corinthians, who was coming to teach? It was the guys that were slick. They were good looking. They were smooth. They'd been to classes. They knew how to present, you know, and they charged. They charged them money to come and talk. And these are the guys. And Paul's saying, you know, He's going to build up to something here, and it's about the saddest scripture, saddest verse I think I've read in a long time. It's um, going to build up to the places. I know why you don't like me. I have a squeaky voice. I've got a hooked nose. I've got weepy eyes. I'm half blind. I'm not very big. I'm kind of a skinny little Jewish guy, you know? I understand that. But You're looking too much at the outward appearance of people, you know? There's a lot of, I don't know why, but sometimes I'll look at like old music videos. They'll pop up. When I was doing that research for for my for the teaching on Sunday, and I was looking up John Lennon and 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 all those guys and their their you know their ridiculous thoughts and ideas and going through all that stuff, you can't help but put, run across a lot of videos and stuff like that. I'm like, man you guys really belong on radio, you know, (laughs) not attractive guys at all. (laughs) And you can see why the Beyonce's and the people like that are are rising to the top because video came. That's, they say, that's why, um, uh, Oh, Nixon lost just because he stood next to Kennedy. I mean, it's like (laughs) we are not voting for Nixon, you know, other, there were other issues, but, (laughs) but he stood next to this Kennedy and Kennedy shaved. And the debate was at 5 o'clock or 6 o'clock at night, and, and, and Nixon came right from the office, and he had this, I mean, he, he's a hairy dude. And so he gets up on the screen, and he's like, this is a homeless guy next to, you know, and he law. I mean, just the numbers weren't even there. That's because we look at the outward too much. And Paul's trying to move them away from that. He's going to slowly take him into the, the place where, are you looking at the heart? You know, I understand that when you're looking for a spouse, You want them to be attractive. There's nothing wrong with that too. I understand. But let that not be what draws you to them. It's got to be the heart first. And after the heart, if they're attractive, great. If they're not, hold on to that heart. The heart is far more valuable. And so Paul's trying to take them there. You have a teacher, he says, a pastor who loves you with all of his heart. Those guys don't. They charged you money. I would never do that to you. You don't see the difference, you know, kind of thing so he's trying to bring them back to that. Be excited about what's coming. Be thinking about eternity. Don't think of this world that's so temporary. That's the reality check I believe Paul's trying to bring to the Corinthian church is you need to not be distracted by the fake. And this is included. My body. This world is all fading. It all passes away. In verse 6. So we are always confident knowing that while we are at home in the body, we are absent from the Lord. For we walk by faith, not by sight. We are confident, yes, well pleased, rather to be absent from the body and to be present with the Lord. Paul, with these three verses, takes care of two of the worst doctrines that have ever entered the church. One is soul sleeping. Paul never thought about soul sleeping, never thought it existed. Or purgatory. Or purgatory. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. There is no in-between. You don't burn for a thousand years and then finally make it in, and there is no soul sleeping where you're unconscious for a period of time and then finally get into heaven. Paul doesn't believe that at all. Paul never even even crossed his mind. His uh, heart here for them is, um, I'm looking forward to being with the Lord, are you? You know? We're confident of this very thing. We're we're confident that this is going to take place. And so confident. I mean, maybe that's the wrong word. We wouldn't use that with each other. Um, I'm so sure of it. I'm so looking forward to it. I set my life clock based off of it. You know, I mean, it's what I do. I wake up in the morning thinking, Paul doesn't care if he gets beat down that day. I mean, it hurts, of course. But he's like, I'm not trying to preserve this. Makes no difference to me. In John chapter 14, verses 1 through 6. Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. And where I go, you know, and the way you know. Now, Thomas said, Lord, we do not know where you are going, or how how can we know the way? Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. I want you to know that I'm preparing this body for you. There is a mansion for you, there is a new thing. Don't be so concerned with your physical body. I'm preparing a place for you, and it's going to be even better. It's way better. It's a mansion. Um, the jewish people didn't look for mansions and maybe when they first came into the promised land and every man was supposed to be under his own vine you know the promise and uh, you know all the all the all the honey so land flowing with milk and honey and all that and they had ideas you know we're all going to be billionaires when we move into the land things have changed drastically in israel especially under roman occupation and so when he begins to describe this mansion that's encouraging to them you know I don't have to worry about every vine, land flowing with milk and honey. It's all temporary. Eventually, I will be there with him. Paul tells the Galatians in chapter 3, verse 2, I want you to set your mind on things above, not on things of the earth. How come he's confident? How come he's always well-pleased? How come he's always present with the Lord? Because he does that now. Paul walks his, his life. He walks his walk now like that. I wish I could go backwards through this chapter. I think it almost would make more sense if I could go backwards, but we'll connect the dots at the very end. He's walking them solely. First of all, stop worrying about your body and, and all those things. And then I want you to know about eternity and your new mansion and, and the new body that you're going to get. We're confident in this. and that He's given us the Holy Spirit as a seal of promise. See, without the Holy Spirit, without that part of God coming into you and filling your life, you don't have that assurance. You don't have that promise. You don't know. I know. I can say what Paul says. I can have that confidence that he has because I have the Holy Spirit. That's the only reason I know. Otherwise, it'd be wishful thinking. But I know that I know because I have the Holy Spirit. I have this seal. And that's why I set my mind on things above. I can't not, I don't know, I, sometimes I almost feel like I can't stop thinking about God no matter what I'm doing. I'm painting a chick, I, I left some paint on me, Carolyn says, to sh- prove that I was working today. And uh, I was painting the chicken shed yesterday, it just tells you I didn't take a shower, is what it tells you, but or didn't scrub hard enough. Anyway, um, I think about the Lord doing that, I'm thinking about whitewashing, you know. I wandered from whitewashed tombs to Tom Sawyer. I went back and forth. I'm a little carnal in mind sometimes, you know, whitewashing the fence and whitewashing tombs. And, you know, I tried to keep my focus there. And I'm always thinking about the Lord. That's just the Holy Spirit. It's like he can't not commune with God. He can't not do that. And it's like, I can't not. And it's just constantly, I set my mind on things above. Everything's in constant deterioration down here. Everything's falling apart. Cars are falling apart, our houses are falling apart. That chicken shed's falling apart. It's held together by latex paint now, you know, it's just everything. And, and and it's it's all it's all crumbling around us, no matter what we do. It continues to crumble. And it it should keep my mind on the things above where things don't crumble, where things don't rust, where things don't fall apart. It never crossed Paul's mind to not be thinking of the Lord. He was always there, always with God. Verse 9. Therefore, we make it our aim. He's trying to include them in this. He's being very generous. Therefore, we make it our aim, whether present or absent, to be well-pleasing to Him, either with the God, with the Lord, or not with the Lord. We want to live for Him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ that each one may receive the things done in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad, knowing therefore the terror of the Lord. We persuade men, but we are well known to God. And I also trust we are well known in your consciences, that so he's moving forward. It's his next step. Don't be worrying about the body. Don't be looking at the way people look. Don't be. Let's think about eternity. Let's think about mansions. Let's be thinking about how confident we are. Let's think about the Holy Spirit. Let's be thinking about now... At that very last sentence, we're well known by God. Are we well known by you? Or do you disown us? You know, have you stopped talking about Paul? This church doesn't know, doesn't know who they have. Can you imagine not knowing that Paul, Paul, he's not famous back here. They, They don't understand who he is back here. Their perspective of Paul was... He's like he's like a C actor, you know, or a B actor in a C movie. I don't know which is worse. I he's just uh, that's Paul. But oh oh, is Apollos coming? Paul move. I, I think I see Apollos coming. They couldn't see who they had. You know, they had no idea. And Paul says, "Am I am I even known in your conscience to you even do you even consider?" You know. And Paul's not trying to boast about how famous he is or how anointed he is or anything like that, but he he, he does call him on he does it. He says, this is expected. It's a little bit of a rebuke. A lot of the things he says in this chapter are tongue-in-cheek, a little sarcastic. I also trust we are well-known in your consciences, knowing full well that he's not. In Revelation 20, speaking of this judgment seat of Christ, let's go to the great white throne judgment instead. Verse 11, Then I saw a great white throne, and him who sat on it, from whose face the earth and heaven fled away, and there was found no place for them. So this whole earth and all this creation has been dissolved, and it's just us standing before, just them standing before the great white throne for judgment. And I saw the dead, small and great, standing before God, and the books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged according to their works by the things which were written in the books. The sea gave up the dead who were in it, and death and Hades delivered up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one according to his works. Then death and Hades were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. And anyone not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire it Has a second death. So how do I get in the, in the book of life? We believe on Jesus for your salvation. Jesus died on the cross for our sins. We trust in him. We believe that by faith. We don't know. We haven't seen. I don't know. I've never read the book. Never seen the book. But his word says so. The God I believe in, the God I trust, the God of the Bible, tells me that this is the way of salvation. No man comes to the Father but by him. But if I have him, I'm in the Lamb's book of life. I'm there. And so by faith, I believe that. It's the only hope I have. I live my life based upon it. I I know that I'm going to heaven because of what God's word says, not because I've experienced it. Only because I know that He said so. So what's this great way, what's this Christ's judgment seat? What's this beam of seat? Well, He says your deeds are going to be done in Christ. He's telling a believing church here: you're going to be doing things. You're going to stand before God, and He's going to judge those things. Okay, He's going to see what's which were done for him and which were done not for him. That's what he means by which ones are good or bad. He's not only looking at the deeds that are done or not done. You know, I didn't tell anybody about Jesus. I didn't. It's it's not a salvation issue. It's some kind of reward thing. That's what he says. You get crowns. I don't know what we're going to do with them except throw them at his feet. We're not worthy to wear them. You're worthy. But then he says we're going to judge whether they were good or bad. That's a little disconcerting. Or my motives behind doing it? Not only do I, 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 am, I, am I called to hear the Holy Spirit and go do what God's called me to do, but I need to do it with the right motive. If I didn't do it with the right motive, that part will be judged also. I do it for Christ, and I do it for myself. We don't have that great white throne judgment waiting for us as believers. If you're an unbeliever, tonight you do. You've decided to not accept this salvation from Christ You've decided to stand before God on your own. That's your choice. But then you're accountable for all of your sins. Christ isn't. You've made yourself accountable for those things. But for those who are believers, who've trusted in Jesus, Romans 8.1 says, there is now therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. My very first youth group that I had in Tarquio, I've shared it a couple times, we're at the Farmer State Bank, they let us meet the meeting room for free. And I drug in my gigantic speakers this big and had three kids that would show up. And I'd blast POD music for worship. And I'd run the overhead and do the words. Kids, kids couldn't hear themselves think. But I was doing youth group, you know, kind of thing. The, way I, the only way I knew how. I didn't know how. I just did it. And that was the it was a stumbling block for a gal that came, young gal. She grew up in a Christian home and was probably attending because her mom and dad kicked her out and says, you need to support this guy, this poor kid, you know, kind of thing. She was from Rockport. And we talked about these two thrones, and she was absolutely dumbfounded. What do you mean? What do you mean we're not going to stand before Christ and be judged for our sins? I said, no, 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 no. And I went through the whole doctrine with her. And it was absolutely eye-opening to her. What church do you go to? Well, I go to this church. They can't possibly not teach this at your church. They can't possibly not. I began to realize, you know, it was one of the very first things that we ever did in ministry over here. Um, But boy, there's a lot of biblical illiteracy. We need to know what the Bible says about this stuff. Because you're coming up with ideas and thoughts. And yeah, it would work, I suppose, to keep your youth group in line. You better watch out, you know. Or, you know, when you stand before the great white throne judgment, uh... Yeah, it's a short-term gain. Keep your kids in line. They're not going to go drinking on the dirt roads, I guess, or whatever else they could be doing out there, but long-term loss because they don't have a loving relationship with their Savior. They're not walking with Jesus because of salvation. They're walking with Jesus for their salvation. You missed the boat entirely. You missed grace. It's terrible. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. I have no sin over me. I have no debt. I owe nothing. I'm going to get to heaven and Christ is going to look at me and says, You know, well done, good and faithful servant. Oh, well, is that great? No, 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 I'm looking at me. You <laughs> know, you're wearing the righteousness of Christ. I'm looking at me. Yeah, well done. Good. I'm not looking at you. You know, it's huge. And so Paul is encouraging them. You used to have that dread of the Lord, you used to have that fear, you used to have that. What, what's the word that he uses here? Um, I'm gonna find the right terror. Um, but you don't have that terror anymore. You've been you've been set free. I, I, it's such an important thing. In Philippians chapter one, verses fifteen through nineteen, um, the teachers that were coming into the Corinthian church fell into one of two categories and this is what they are some indeed preach christ even from envy and strife and some also from goodwill the former preach christ from selfish ambition not sincerely supposing to add affliction to my chains but the latter out of love knowing that i am appointed for the defense of the gospel what then only that in every way whether in pretense or in truth christ is preached preached and in this i rejoice yes i will rejoice that's an example of, you did preach Christ, but what were your motives behind it on well, to make Paul's life hard? Mm, that's not going to count for you then. You don't get any reward for trying to make Paul's life miserable by trying to out-preach him. You know? Paul's like, I don't care why you do it. That's not my problem. I don't have to worry about your motives. At least Christ was preached. But the person preaching needs to be concerned about their motives. In First Corinthians 3:12, another example. Now if anyone builds on this foundation, foundation of Jesus Christ and him crucified with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw each one's work will become clear, for the day will declare it, because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test each one's work of what sort it is. If anyone's work, which he has built on it, endures, he will receive a reward. I'm not making this up, just so you know that's biblical. If anyone's work is burned, he will suffer loss. But he himself will be saved, yet so is through fire. Kind of ties it all in, you know. It's just a Calvary doctrine? Is this just, no, It's just biblical. He says you're going to, everything that we do as believers is going to be judged. He's going to, you know, torch it, so to speak. And everything that burns was of you and everything that was of him is going to stay. And that's what it is. I mean, we may show up. I'm going to show up with this giant satchel of stuff I did. And I'm going to dump it out before the Lord. And he's going to go, there's a little gold in there, maybe, you know. Good job, J.D. You know, he's going to set him over here. Well done, good and faithful servant. I'm like, what about all that? You know, your motives were horrible. I mean, I accomplished what I wanted to accomplish. But, I mean, out of the 5,000 sermons you gave, 200 of them were okay, you know. (laughs) Because you weren't thinking about yourself. I hope that's not the ratio, but anyway. That's what he means by that. And so Paul is just laying it out. This is, this is it. This is Christian doctrine. This is Christian, Christianity 101. Everybody ought to know that. You're going to receive a reward based off of what you do in Jesus Christ. Not salvation. That's not the reward. That is paid for. That's grace. That's given. That's a gift. You don't earn that. You can't buy it. You can't run it. You can't run any faster than you are. But apparently there's other things. Okay. And everything else is left behind. worthless. So Paul's encouraging them. Consider your motives. Consider your heart on these things. Verse 12, for we do not commend ourselves again to you. And here's more tongue-in-cheek sarcasm, unfortunately, probably the saddest verse. We do not commend ourselves again to you, but give you opportunity to boast on our behalf that you may have an answer for those who boast in appearance and not in heart. See, so how I want to go backwards. That's the whole point of this. You're boasting about the wrong people in your life. You're boasting about the appearance and the looks. You're posting about your, 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 your boasting about the numbers or you're posting about, no, it's the heart. And so Paul says, I'm going to give you another opportunity to boast in me. And you can see him kind of stick out his little tiny, you know, frail chest and say, here I am. You can, Did you want to put my picture on the wall? Because he knows they don't. They're not proud of Paul. They're not happy with him. That's why they found all the other teachers. They were better looking. They were more eloquent. They were more quick. Everybody knew who they were. I mean, they had letters of commendation. They came with a resume. And Paul's like, my only resume or my, you know, my last cast I had to wear that Luke put on me from getting beat down. We often joke about that with pastor search committees. Can you imagine getting Paul's resume across your desk? Well, (laughs) I used to kill Christians, first off, and then he blinded me, and then I was kind of in obscurity for 14 years, and then they let me in, and then I started preaching, but I get beat down every time I go, you know, oh yeah, you're hired, you know, what kind of salary can we (laughs) give you, Paul? No. You'd be on the bottom of the stack. Where'd you graduate from, Paul? Oh, I count that all as dung. All of your schooling, you count as dung. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for, for, for what I've gained in Christ, that was all nothing. You know, mm. he'd lose. I'd like for you to boast in me, but I know you won't, is the idea. For if we are besides our, beside ourselves, if we're crazy, it's for God. Or if we are of sound mind, it's for you. For the love of Christ compels us because we judge thus. That if one died for all, then all died. And he died for all. That those who live should live no longer for themselves, but for him who died for them and rose again. There's a lot there. <laughs> There's a lot. Mm, we're beside ourselves. I was thinking about the times that people were crazy in Scripture. Um, Galatians 2.20. Let's do that one. Um, No, let's, all right, let's do that. Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So the first thing he says is I'm going to live for him. If Christ died for me, And I'm going to live forever with him because he died and rose again. I'm going to die and rise again. I'm going to be with him. I'm going to ascend. I'm going to live for him. It's just a natural response. It should be automatic. Um, Someone who took away hell from my life and from my future and has given me heaven instead, of course, I'm going to live an entire life of gratitude for that, you know, is is what he's saying. In Romans chapter 6, verses 5 through 7, for if we have been united together in the likeness of his death, Certainly we also shall be in the likeness of his resurrection, knowing this, that our old man was crucified with him, that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves of sin. For he who has died has been freed from sin. I'm living for him now. That old man is dead. I reckon it dead. Acts twenty six twenty four. Now as he thus made his defense... Festus said with a loud voice, this is Paul in the book of Acts. Paul, you are beside yourself. Much learning is driving you mad. Paul was trying to witness to the guy who was judging him. He was judge over him at the time. He says, Are you really trying to get me saved? You know, are you trying to get this whole room saved? I think you're crazy. Paul says, I wish I was crazy. You know, I wish you'd all be saved. Sometimes it looks like that to people. The Corinthian church had stalled out. They weren't radical for Jesus anymore. They had sold out for looks and appearances and pecking orders and groups and cliques. They'd stopped moving forward in humility and pride had swallowed their entire church to the point where they weren't crazy for Jesus anymore. They were normal Christians. They were typical Christians. They were average Christians. You could hardly tell the difference between them and anybody else on this earth, see? We're not called to that. If we are beside ourselves, it's for God. How could you not be beside yourself? I'm so sure, like Paul is so sure, that when I die, I'm going to heaven, or the rapture is going to take place, and I'm going with him then. I'm so sure of it. I want to live my life that way. I talk to people about the Lord all the time. I'm not embarrassed about it. I don't understand why they don't get it. I'm not the other way around. I'm not still trying to convince myself. I I listen to some Christians talk about their faith, and it's like they're still trying to talk themselves into it. Like I don't think you understand. I don't think you're born again. You're still trying to convince yourself that you're doing the right thing, that you're walking the right walk. It's like, wait a minute. Are you born again? Have you received the Spirit? Have you received this seal, this promise, this down payment of God in your life? Have you been given a new heart? I think that's what it is. So many people are trying to ask God when they come to church the first time, God, repair my heart. My heart is broken. My heart is weak. My heart is soft. Repair. He says, I don't want to repair your heart at all. I want to give you a new one. And they live their whole Christian walk trying to repair what's broken. It's like, no, no, no. We're getting rid of that. I got a new and improved model. When you're born again, and maybe you know this, and maybe this helps to explain it, or you can explain it to other people. When you're born again, you're... You're completely healed of the, of the spiritual cancer of sin in your life. You're completely healed of it. Now, the symptoms may remain, but you're healed. If they did an x-ray, a spiritual x-ray in your life, as soon as you believe on Jesus, the cancer's gone. You're clear and free. Now, you may be hobbling around a little bit still. You may be still have some repercussions from what it's done to you in your life, but you are cancer-free. You are spiritually cancer-free. God has touched us. When the woman with the issue of blood reached out to touch the hem of of his garment, she was immediately healed and made whole again. God touches our lives, causes us to be born again, and and we're healed of the cancer, and he begins to change us and transform us, gives us a new heart, gives us a new mind. The transformation that's going to take place at the end in Revelation 21, which we're going to get to in a minute, the new heaven and the new earth has already begun, in the born-again believer... Yeah, that's all going to take place, but he's already started that work in us now. He's just touched us. We're healed. Now we're just taking care of symptoms and problems. You've got a new heart. You've got a new mind. You're being transformed into the image of Jesus Christ. For now, we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now it's kind of partial, but by the time we're dead, we're going to be completely conformed. You see what's happening? We've already started that process as a born again. If you're not a born again believer tonight, you need to let God start that process in you. You need to let him touch you tonight. You need to give your heart to him and ask him not to repair it, but to take it and run with it and give me a new one. Give me your heart, Christ, that I might see people the way you see people, that I might forgive like you forgive. I can't do that with the old heart. That heart holds bitterness. That heart holds grudges. I want people dead in that heart, you know. But the new heart sees everybody differently. The new brain sees the whole world completely different. My old brain, Mm you know, it's a big deal. See, Paul is there, and he wants the Corinthian church there too, but they're not. And he has such hopes for them. He says, you guys have gotten stalled out. You've gotten stuck. You're not radical. You're not crazy for Christ anymore like you used to be when I was there. Yeah, but you were ugly, Paul. You know? We've got good-looking teachers now. Now we're respectable in the community. Now we're, oh man, we need to lose some of that. (laughs) Not respect, but be a little radical. John chapter 10, verses 19 through 21. Therefore, there was a division again um, uh, again, among the Jews because of those sayings. And many of them said, this is about Jesus. He is a demon and is, in, and is mad. Why do you listen to him? And others said, these are not the words of one who has a demon. Can a demon open the eyes of the blind? The world will always think the Christians are crazy because they haven't seen and they don't know. And they'll always say, oh my goodness, they're brainwashed. Well, sort of. We got new ones. We didn't wash the old ones, but we got new ones. Not brainwashed, or just our eyes are opened. Spiritually, we can see things now that we couldn't see. And our friends and family that aren't born again, they can't see them. And it's hard, right? Trying to explain to a blind person what a rainbow looks like. Like, oh, I wish I could open your eyes so you could see this. Well, first of all, there's lots of colors. What's a color? <sighs> Look, you just need to have sight. It's going to be a lot easier if you just get unblinded and get some sight. And for me to try to describe what it's like to be a Christian and what I feel inside, and what's changed and what's happening to me, I don't know how to explain it to you. All I can say is, come, join. Verse 16. Therefore, from now on, we regard no one according to the flesh. See what he's taking him to? Stop looking at everybody's flesh. If, if the flesh is dead and we're rising to new life in Christ and we're going to have new bodies and new hearts and new minds and all these new things, why are we still regarding everybody based on the outward appearance? From now on, we regard no one according to the flesh, even though we have known Christ according to the flesh. We've seen him. We've handled him. Paul was around when Jesus was ministering. Yet now we know him thus, uh, thus no longer. We know him now by the Spirit. It's so much better. See, Paul was physically present when Jesus was ministering. We have a sense that perhaps he got tasted Jesus' whip in the temple. He was probably there with the money changers at one point. Probably got you know caught with it. Who knows? But he was not happy with Jesus. He was not happy with the disciples of Jesus so much so that he wanted to lead the killing of all of them. So something happened to that guy to make him that angry. You know, Probably got some bruises there. He says, I And he was in the presence of Christ, and had n- Christ had no effect on him. But by the Holy Spirit, Paul's a completely different person now. That has the effect. Paul says, we, we knew Christ in the flesh, but we don't know him that way anymore. Now we know him in the Spirit. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. Now all things are of God, who has reconciled us to himself through Jesus Christ. And has given us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, that God was in Christ, reconciling the world to himself, not imputing their trespasses to them, and has committed to us the word of reconciliation, reminding the the Corinthian church, this is what we do. This is what's happened to you. This is the ministry you've been given. This is what you do. This is a lot of doctrine here. The second thing... (laughs) Nick will remember this a good a good brother who was at help with the engineering out there. Um, wasn't so sure about the Hebrews 1 eight on the side of the building. We put Hebrews one eight, Jesus is God. That's what the, what we wrote. Jesus is God. Well, he's the Son of God. He struggled to say Jesus is God. Now I think he understood, I think he came to that conclusion. I think he understood later on. but for him to say that so bluntly, Jesus is God, Wait a minute. The Father is God, that I know. And the Holy Spirit, well, we still call him an it, because we think he's a force or an essence of some kind. But Jesus being God? Mm -hmm. Two verses, just so we understand. That is that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. Jesus is God. That's not even open to debate. So when they tell you, then the Bible never says Jesus is God. Yes, it does, right here. And then also in Hebrews 1.8, But to the Son, He, the Father, says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever, a scepter of righteousness and a scepter of your kingdom. The Father calls Jesus God. It's not even debate. It's scriptural, it's biblical, and we have to know that in our hearts. When I receive God the Father and believe on Him, that's fine, but when I believe in God the Son... I also need to believe in the next part is God, the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is God. He is. And they're the same. They're different, but they're the same. So when, when we talk about, why well, don't we need that Holy Spirit stuff? That's a ridiculous statement. Do you like the Father? Well, yeah. Do you like Jesus? Yeah. Then you like the Holy Spirit. He's the same. He's not some wacko. You know, he's not like a, a second cousin, you know, or something like that. that I don't know. No, no. He's the seal. I will come and make my dwelling place with you. I will dwell in you. I will be in you. I'm your seal. Just, it's like your first glimpse. I, the, the new creation has started. I'm in you. The fellowship's begun. What most people think they have to wait for heaven to experience, you can have now in this earth by the Holy Spirit. We begin to feel and hear and listen and walk and obey and be led by. And it's an amazing thing. It's like I'm, I'm walking in the cool of the day with the Lord. He's in me. It's a beautiful thing. Nothing to be afraid of. John 16, 7, nevertheless, Jesus says, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I depart, I will send him to you, the Holy Spirit. He's sitting. I mean, how many of you would rather have Jesus in front of you? Don't raise your hands because you'll embarrass yourself. Because I, I know how I would have felt. Who would rather sit and speak with Jesus by the fire for a couple hours or, or have the Holy Spirit? Oh, I'd want Jesus by the fire. Jesus says it would be better if I left so that you can have the Holy Spirit. Jesus himself says it's better. A walk with the Holy Spirit is better than being having fireside chats with me. Does that blow your mind? Does it settle it in hard? It needs to. It needs to become firm in our lives. Revelation twenty-one five. And he who sat on the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. It's the exact same words he says here. Behold, I make all things new. And he said to me, Write, for these words are true and faithful. That is when the... When the new heaven and the new earth come down, he uses the same words there in Revelation 21, five, new heaven, new earth, as he does right here about us and our relationship with God. I make all things new become. Uh, verse uh, 17, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The new creation, the new heaven and new earth, it's already begun in the person, in you and in I. Old things have passed away. Fervent heat, burned, gone Behold, all things have become new. Same verbiage as he says about the new creation. It's begun. It's a powerful church. And everybody believes that. Paul so desperately wants the Corinthians to walk by faith and understand all these things. He hopes so much for them. They should be so much further along than they are. They've gotten stalled. And finally, now then, We are ambassadors for Christ, as though God were pleading through us. Comprehend that. I am authorized and have the full authority and power. (laughs) Careful how I say this, right? I'm an ambassador for Christ, and so are you. An ambassador walks in and speaks on behalf of who they represent as the authority. I'm not saying, and don't get me wrong, you know, You know, name it and claim it. I'm going to get a Mercedes. I claim it and name it. Not doing anything like that. But to understand the importance of what it means when he calls us ambassadors. How important it is we carry ourselves like ambassadors for whom we represent the king. If I show up and have the authority... And the power, according to God's word, to speak on behalf, you know, I can tell you, and this is what, this is, this is what we say, we implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. I have that right and authority and the words to say that. I can say that to anybody. With the same powers if Jesus was saying it to them. I am an ambassador for Christ. When you walk up to somebody and begin to witness to them and tell them about the love of Jesus, understand you're an ambassador for Christ and you're sharing with them. As if Jesus was standing in front of them himself saying, you need to believe on me for salvation. As if they were the thief next to Jesus on the cross and they're standing in front of you. You have that kind of authority. Be reconciled. For he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in him. That's our message. That's the gospel. We implore people. We plead with people. We try to convince people. I struggle with that sometimes, and I think you've understood that. I think I've said that probably too many times from a period. It's like, I don't know if I even, you know, hey, take it or leave it. It's the gospel. I'm okay. I'm walking with Jesus. I know I'm going to heaven. You're the one in trouble. I'm going to tell you the truth. That's not how he wants us to present the gospel to people. We're to plead with them. or to convince them. or to talk with them about it. We're to help them understand and bring them to the conclusion that it is True. You know, I know the Holy Spirit has to do the work, but I need to do my part also. And that's to share an impassioned plea. Please don't go to hell. I implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God today. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. Thank you for your heart for us, for Paul's heart for the church. And now Lord, give us that same heart for those around us that don't know you, that we would implore them. We beg them, we convince them, we would encourage them in any way we can to receive you as their Lord and Savior, to be reconciled to God. They may feel distant and far away from you, but they can be reconciled to you because you've done it. You've taken the step towards them. You've done everything necessary for there to be peace between you and them. You've forgiven them of their sins. You've made the way. All they have to do is accept that gift of salvation, that freedom. And so, Lord, tonight we, we implore, and I'll implore, if there's anybody tonight that doesn't know Jesus or doesn't have a, a relationship with Christ, please be reconciled to him today, tonight. Don't leave here without him. Don't spend another day wasted, blind. Let God bring that spiritual sight to you to take away all of your sin, all the guilt and shame to pull you close, to draw you in, to give you the love that you've never experienced before, a forgiveness that you didn't think was possible. Eyes wide open to minister and to be full of love and grace and peace to those around you in a way that isn't possible with your human heart, but with God's heart it is. To Give you a new mind to see the world as he created it and what it was intended for versus what the world's polluted it with that you'd have the new mind of Christ. I pray that you would receive him. If you want to, you can pray now, Jesus. I accept you as my Lord and Savior tonight. I believe on you for salvation. Thank you for your love for me. Thank you for your word. By faith, I believe it. You, You said this is the way, and I believe it, and I'm taking the way. I want to be born again. Give me a new heart and a new mind. Help me to understand your word. Help me to be filled with your spirit that I might walk with you and have that seal and understanding what it means to have that assurance of salvation, always being confident of my eternity. I want that. And I ask you for it. And I love you. I don't want to live for myself anymore. I want to live for you. Thank you for dying for me. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If you need prayer before you go, please come up. If you've accepted Christ as your Lord and Savior, we'd love to talk with you. Give you a Bible, whatever we can do for you. Have a good night.